Kanji Cast, the podcast that you never made a deal with. We're also the show that didn't make the castle run in 12 parsecs, even if you round down. But we do provide an Asian perspective into the galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Bria, and with me are my co-hosts, Brian and Jay. Hello. Hi. On today's episode, we're finally going to be talking about all things Naboo and its monarchy, because we can keep to a schedule. How long we can? Is that allowed? How? Yes. How long ago did we initially plan this one? March. Whoops. It's fine. Okay. It's it's not my fault. It's not my fault. The the universe just kept throwing other interesting things at us. It was Marvel's fault last time. It was Marvel's fault last time. And also Jay's because he doesn't check the Slack and doesn't didn't go. Uh, guys, don't we have a plan? I was slacking on the Slack. It's not my fault. <sighs> That's that's the definition of your fault. Mm. Respectfully disagree. I am faultless at all times. Brian, tiebreaker. Uh, I'm going with Bria on this one. Ha! Well, I don't approve of democracy, and and so there. But which is ironic on an episode about Naboo. But never mind. That was oh, <laughs> you beat me to it. <sighs> Shall we talk about the news? Let's talk about the news. Because, and then there's this, which is actually, I am very excited that we've had so much positive over the last couple months for all of this. Well, kind of. Mm. Because the first one, uh, Star Wars Resistance, it's coming back in October, which I'm really excited about. The bad news is that, if you hadn't heard this yet, season two is going to be its final season. Too soon. Uh, Just when it was hitting its stride, too. Just damn it. Yeah. I I went through a lot of emotions when I saw the notifications go by on my phone because I saw the sweet season two trailer. And then I like put my phone back down, kept talking to some of my coworkers at lunch. And then I looked at the actual press release five minutes later and went, final? What? And then I was sad and mad. And told at least two coworkers to get out of my office to let me mourn for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, God. Just, I don't know if they could have found a worse way to handle handle this announcement than the way they did. Yeah, like, I, I, I get that theoretically it might have been that this story was always supposed to be this short. But I but it's like, if, if that were the case, I kind of wish that were communicated ahead of time like maybe not at the beginning of the show they could have done it at celebration but sometime to let us process it and not just sort of throw it at us right with the second season yeah i can't stop comparing how rebels and resistance have been treated by lucasfilm i mean for rebels you know you got the the main stage giant panel um all both years I was at Celebration. And then actually, Brian, you and I were sitting together at the last Celebration Orlando. Mm-hmm. And we went on that wild emotional ride because they showed us the trailer for season four of Rebels. And everyone's like, woo! And then Filoni comes out and goes, okay, guys, by the way. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I got that reverse. He told us, or wait, did he tell us it was the. He he told us, uh, he told us it was the last, last season, season yeah. first. Yeah. Okay, so he told us it was the last season. We're all like, no. And then he showed us the trailer. And we're like, yes. And then he showed us the first episode. And we're like, no. Because 
that was cliffhanger. a huge cliffhanger of doom. That was painful. But point is, is that was on that was like a Saturday panel. I mean, getting into that, we we got like special press passes. That was the only way that we got into that panel at all. And then Resistance had a Monday afternoon panel, I think it was. Monday afternoon yeah. getaway panel. Yep. Yeah. So and a lot I'm, of people had left. It was a smaller stage. It wasn't the main stage. And the really sad thing about it is like. I think this is the first time most of us have gotten a chance to see the cast together in person, and they are so good. They are so incredible in person that my thoughts after watching that panel were, I would love just a special feature reel of these people bantering in their like voice acting rooms because they're incredible together. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, the the truly annoying thing is right now we're just operating under the assumption that it was this was always the plan, that it was always going to be two seasons. But we don't even know that for sure, because Lucasfilm just does not talk about this show the way they talked about Clone Wars or uh, Rebels. And also, I don't think they'd tell us if it was a cancellation like they wouldn't say, oh, the ratings were bad. We canceled it. Like there's no way in the universe they tell us that. No, yeah. and if it was a cancellation because ratings were bad, that's Lucasfilm's own fault. For 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. Yeah. With like, I, a streaming app that was buggy as hell. Yeah. And that was a th- that was another thing that I, I felt we really missed as far as Resistance went was no one was – we didn't get to watch the show together because I feel like that was a huge part of why – rebels picked up such a fan base is we were all sitting at our computers watching the episodes together at like what 9 p.m episodes or so eastern time Mm -hmm. and then we were all tweeting together and it built this sense of community and it built the buzz and the conversation about the show plus you had the tie-in book um the comic and resistance didn't get any of those and i felt like i mean obviously it wouldn't be I wouldn't have expected a Del Rey novel in retrospect. That should have been a Lucasfilm Disney. Disney press like thing, a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like a middle grade novel would have been great, but... Not to know. mention that Rebels got not only the main Disney channel treatment for the first episode, didn't they also they got, rerun the episode yeah, on ABC? Yeah, they ran it on ABC. Yeah. Like oh, that's, that's right. That's how that, you build an audience, because even if it's on demand primarily, and the time slot, quote-unquote, doesn't matter, people need to know about the show before they can even watch it on demand. Right, and they did that Darth Vader thing, right? Yep, that special Darth Vader footage. Yeah, I mean, let's be real, they could have pulled the same thing, except with Kylo, which is would have yeah. been kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, there, there were opportunities all over the place for Lucasfilm to do more with this show, and it seemed like every opportunity they elected not to. Yeah, and I'm just, I don't know. I'm bummed because I got to talk to a couple of the cast. Like we talked about this in the celebration episode. Uh, got to talk to Christopher Sean, who is an incredible human being. Couldn't be nicer. You can tell how much he loves doing the show and he knows what Kaz means to so many people. Um, heck, Bobby Moynihan was totally nice and chill and awesome when I chatted with him for a few minutes. I mean, I just wish they had gotten more. They deserve more. Yeah. It just deserved more at every possible facet. Like, the cast deserved more love. The show deserved more marketing. The show deserved a better time slot. It just deserved more. And I am really 
disappointed that um, if this wasn't a cancellation, we it was never communicated that this was going to be a limited run at any point. And if it was a cancellation, that they didn't give this show the chance to go through the growing pains that Clone Wars and Rebels did. I, does anybody remember how rough the first season of Clone Wars was? Sort of. I didn't. I didn't actually start watching Clone Wars until after it was all over. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was rough. For all of the complaints that Resistance was rough, Clone Wars was ten times harder to watch. Yeah. But I I feel like everyone at this point has built up the Clone Wars and they've built up Filoni so much in their head that it's hard for some people to, you know, give something else and someone else a chance. And cynical part of me says Lucasfilm also struggles with that. I don't know. Anyways, not great. Not, not great, Bob. But hey, definitely watch Resistance Season 2 and let's try to give it some stellar ratings and at least let the show go out with some dignity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about that. Uh, so spoiler, that's going to be our discussion next month. So we're going to talk about Season 1 and we'll talk about our hopes and dreams for Season 2. Um, should we move on to something ha- slightly happier? Please. Yes, please. Yeah. So to all the boys I love before is getting more... More Netflix movies, because I forgot how to speak halfway through that sentence. Uh, they Netflix announced that P.S. I Still Love You will premiere on February 12th on Netflix, and that uh, the third the third story, Always and Forever, Laura Jean, is currently in production. Uh, I'm really excited about this, because the movie, the first movie was the cutest thing ever, and I really enjoyed the second book. Um, I'm still waiting on the library hole to come up for the third one, but so far they've been really cute stories. Brian, did you watch it yet? No. Brian. I, I, I'm i just going to use the excuse that uh, I... No. I, no. I'm, I'm very busy preparing for a major life event right now. Brian, you have been to Galaxy's Edge once. You are going to have been to Galaxy's Edge a second time by the time this podcast probably hits the air. Watch the movie. Yeah, I, okay, I will. I will. <laughs> I promise I will. <laughs> Jay, are you excited for the next one? Um, I still need to finish the first movie, oh too. Oh, my God. I hate you both. <laughs> At least I watched po- half of it. Dear podcast gods, please get me another co-host who appreciates a good Asian rom-com because neither of my current co-hosts are willing to watch them. <laughs> the problem is I rarely watch rom-coms. Okay, but your wife is right there and she watches rom-coms all the time occasionally sometimes yeah fine fine we'll move on to the next thing be like that i see how you guys are all right so dante bosco who you may know as rufio rufio is making his directorial debut in the fabulous filipino brothers it is written by him and his two brothers darian darian and dionysio i think i pronounced that right a dark romantic comedy of four vignettes about growing up in a suburb of Oakland, and it will be narrated by their sister, Ariana Bosco. Ooh, that is a big family affair. Yeah. Wow. Someone was saying the other day that they hope they give Dante more Star Wars stuff to do, which I approve of. Uh, he's absolutely great narrating those uh, video shorts. 
Yeah, just put him in all sorts of things. He's great. Yeah. And then next up on the list, uh, Aquafina, who is apparently in absolutely everything on the face of the planet. And I'm not complaining. Put her in a Star Wars! They're working on it. Let let her be in an MCU. Um, She is going to star in an adaptation of the urban fantasy novel The Last Adventure of Constance Verity, based on the book by A. Lee Martinez. Uh about Constance Verity, who was saving the world from disaster ever since she was born, but is now exhausted and wants to sample what she missed out on. Friends, job, boyfriend, but it's not easy to walk away when you are a chosen one. Now I really want to read this book. Oh Hold my. on, let me add it. That that pitch is like, okay, if you're going to choose one actress for that elevator pitch, Aquafina is absolutely the one I'd choose. Yeah, I need to add this to my Goodreads list. Yeah, I have uh, to say, when I was uh, looking up the description for this, I was the same. I was like, wait, this actually sounds really interesting to me. Huh. I can type in. Ooh. Oh, it's a series. Nice. Yeah, this sounded real. Like, I'm in mostly from the. It's just saving the world, but now she's exhausted and wants to take a nap. Um, Yeah, I don't know anything else about this, but this is definitely a book I'm going to check out. It's a pitch I'm into. Yeah. Uh, anything else that we missed that you guys can think of? Oh, I'm sure we're going to get something out of D23 this weekend that we'll want to talk about on the next show. Oh boy, that's right. Well, okay. In that case, Jay. All right. You're the captain now. Good. Uh, Although I'll take the rank of Admiral. Thank you. No, just the captain. Fine. One epaulet it is. Uh, all right. So today's topic is Naboo. And why are we discussing Naboo? Well, because it's the best, obviously. Um, I'd probably call it my second favorite planet in Star Wars, maybe. But we're not just discussing it because I like it. We're discussing it because there are significant South Asian, East Asian, and Pacific Islander inspiration and influences behind a lot of Naboo culture and design. And not just the design, but also the people who are on screen in the film. So uh, let's get started with some of these elements. Uh, I discussed the names first, but let's skip ahead and do the people first because people are kind of more important than names. So um, with the Asian Pacific portrayals of characters in uh, for Naboo in the Star Wars films, I think the earliest that I can think of chronologically uh, in real time is Queen Jamilia, who was played by Aisha Darker, um, who is South Asian, Indian. And the cool thing about her character is she got to use her own regular accent in a Star Wars movie, not a fake British accent, as early as Attack of the Clones. And that was something that was really cool that we saw, you know, in the recent films with Cassian. And I'm glad that Jamilia also got to use an Indian-style accent on the film. Yeah, I, I always liked her character. She's like She doesn't get too much to do except to be like, Padme, you're pretty cool. Uh, and then take part in the, the shades, both. She's just kind of a witness to the shade throwing at Anakin. Um, he's just a Jedi learner. But <laughs> I did. I I always liked that. I thought that was neat. Uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about the fact that she had gotten to use her natural accent before, given that it seems like Naboo's accents are all over the place. Because um, did I say Natalie Dormer before instead of Natalie Portman? Or do I just have that in my head? It wouldn't surprise me if you had her in your head. Bria, you always have Natalie Dormer <laughs> okay, in your listen. head. <laughs> I have a little bit of a crush. It's fine. Um, 
Sorry, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, uh, so Natalie Portman has, you know, her American accent. And then you've got Palpatine and C.O. Bibble, who both have, I think, British accents. So that was, that's kind of a neat thing, the Naboo, that there's no one Naboo accent. Uh, yeah. It does kind of suck that she had to wear the queen face paint, though. Yeah, although I guess the one one thing that you can notice is you know the face doesn't cover her, like the the makeup doesn't cover her entire face, so you can still tell that she's a woman of color under the makeup, which I appreciated being able to see even in the theaters, especially because I think she's the first uh, South Asian character in a Star Wars film ever, so she was sort of the the icon for a time, despite her small screen time. Wait, what about Deppa? Oh right, because she was in the end of Phantom Menace, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Depa Bilaba was the first, first speaking. Then there yes, we go. Yes. That there we go. Yeah. Um. All right. On to the next chronological, I think, character, which is the uh, Handmaiden Versailles, um, who originally, um, I don't recall the name of the actress who played her, but um, in researching the character, it looks like that uh, E. K. Johnston did an author casting for Versailles and. That was the only character that she had sort of flexibility to give a description for. And she ended up basing the character, according to her Tumblr, on um, a character or on a person that she a tour guide that she'd encountered in New Zealand. And she said that um, she'd, quote, definitely be played by a Maori actress if the book were made into a movie, which I think by the considerations we're using in our podcast is good enough for us to consider her a Maori. Yeah, yep. I have a I have some handmade and stuff for Versailles. To point out. Um, So she's actually in the film before Jamila because she she is the handmaiden in addition to Corday who gets blown up at the start of the movie. Uh, She is so elusive that the Royal Handmaiden Society didn't have a name for her actress. Like we never knew. We know she's there. We knew she had a name, but no one knew who the actress was. And I never saw an actress name until I submitted my piece to StarWars.com with a handmaiden guide. And when it was published, they had found an actress name for her, um, which I thought was fascinating to me. I was like, I don't know where you guys found this, but also you're Lucasfilm. So that makes sense that you would find it. Uh, but that said, because we didn't, no one knew anything about the actress. I love that uh, EK used the opportunity to introduce four characters of color to make to make Naboo within the book match some of what we had seen on screen and be slightly less white than the prominent characters Naboo have been. Yes, because uh, I also see that she added uh, Mariak Panaka, um, and E.K. Johnson said that her headcanon is she was, this description was based on the actress uh, Rachel House from Thor Ragnarok, who's also Maori, is that correct? Yeah. Perfect. She She's the one... Um, uh, what's his Jeff Goldblum's assistant? Oh, her. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I can't she remember has the makeup in the film, doesn't she? She has some makeup on, but oh. I think it's like a couple of some lines, kind of like Valkyrie has. Okay, got it. Yeah. And all these uh, Maori characters that E.K. Johnston added to the cast of Naboo are, are perfect because the next one we see in the film chronologically. I'm um, in Revenge of the Sith is is Queen Apollana, who's played by Keisha Cashel, Castle Hughes, who is Maori. So we definitely have a theme of people of Maori uh, heritage being part of the demographics of Naboo. And she was so teeny tiny back during Revenge of the Sith. 
She like just won or just been nominated for an Oscar too. I think around that time. Wow. For it was something to do with a whale. <laughs> something to do with a whale. You know that would be a great name for a book or movie. Honestly, just something to okay, do with a whale. Hold on. Now, now I have to look it up. Hold on. Listen, I'm a useless vault of Nabu. Whale rider. I got it. It was whale rider. Uh, you were correct that it was something to do with a whale. Yeah. Oh, she's my age. Huh. I did not know that. Oh. Sorry, okay. I'm I'm learning things today, guys. <laughs> so that would have made her another um sort of young teenage uh, Nabu monarch then back in the day, which fits rather well with Nabu culture. Yep. Yeah, she would have been probably 14, I guess, when she played the part. Perfect. Yeah. Amidala's age. Yep. So in Phantom Menace. And speaking of great queens of Naboo, we have uh, one other from Shattered Empire, Queen Sosha Saruna, who is East Asian. Uh, Bria, what do you think of Queen Saruna? I love her. I got really excited. I mean, I love Shattered Empire to begin with because that book is amazing. Um all hail Shara Bay. But I love that instead of, and I think the artist on that issue might, I think it was Margot Giacchetto, but I know that book had multiple artists on it. Um, I love that instead of just being like, eh, we'll just do whatever, that they made it a point to add diversity in there. Um, I also appreciated it since they, you know, I think we talked about this in our appropriation episode about how (laughs) Nabu definitely takes from different cultures. So I was yep. like, good. This this makes me feel a little bit better about some of the stuff they're doing here. Exactly, because we're going to discuss pretty shortly how Nabu not only takes from South Asian cultures and Pacific cultures, it also takes from East Asian cultures. And it feels better to have people of those cultures actually on Nabu and, and being part of that than, than not. And I especially liked how in Shattered Empire... Um, when they do that part where she jumps into a N1 starfighter, which is really awesome, they show her without the makeup just to make it very clear that, yes, this is an East Asian character. Yeah, you see her wiping uh, wiping the makeup off as they all get kitted up to fly. And she's like, I had my pilot license. Don't look surprised. And I was just like, <laughs> this is why I love the women of Naboo. They get stuff done and they are not like they wear their pretty dresses and they look amazing and they can also kick your ass. Yeah. I really need to reread Shattered Empire. It is such a good comic. It's Shara Bay. How could you not want to reread it? Right. And then when and then like while you're actually no, here's what you should do, Brian. You should like read the first two or th- two issues, two or three issues, and then go play that mission, those two missions in Battlefront 2. I yes. was just thinking that. Yep. Oh, man. I love Our- corporate synergy sometimes, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. When corporate synergy involves Naboo, I'm all for it. You would be. <laughs> uh, are there any other characters uh, from Naboo that we want to discuss? Uh, we can even decide to not discuss it, the uh, ones that are just Asian. Although uh, the handmaidens, I think we might uh, get to later during our queen shadow discussion. I feel like that last comment was specifically targeted towards me, Jay. Oh yeah. I know you will have a lot to say. And I really <laughs> that you say it. How about you, Brian? I think I'm set to move on to the next topic. 
All right, so let's go back to the the names. Um, and this was really interesting because I noticed over the years that a lot of names from Naboo were South Asian. And then in researching those names, I came across or looked up some of the other names and found um, some other East and Southeastern Asian names as well. So for the uh, South Asian names, the ones I, I know pretty well, Padme comes from Padma, which is Sanskrit for lotus. Puja is direct Sanskrit, and Puja means prayer or worship. And, and Puja Naberi, of course, is Padme's niece. Um, best seen from the deleted family scenes in Attack of the Clones, but also seen in the funeral in Revenge of the Sith. And then Puja Naberi shows up in Star Wars Galaxies as the senator from, from Naboo, which is a great way of carrying on the family tradition. One of my favorite characters, actually, in that game. Uh, speaking of favorite characters, the name Sheev is... <laughs> Sanskrit. <laughs> the name comes from Shiva, which is the god of creation, time, transformation, and destruction. So Definitely okay, wait, got that last question. part right. Yeah. Uh, my question for you, Jay, is: Is it did it really come from Shiva, or was it just Uncle George throwing letters at a piece of paper? Yeah. So that was that's. I'm glad you bring up that question because we'll get to that in a second with the name Amidala, which. Um, I'm not convinced it is actually Sanskrit, but from Shiv, according to either Pablo or somebody else who was talking about it while, you know, we were all making fun of the name on Twitter a few years ago. Um, it's apparently uh, during the design of, I think, Star Wars Underworld or whatever that live action TV show was. George Lucas had um, old notes that he brought back saying, hey, Palpatine's name is Shiv and that he had explicitly <laughs> based it on, you know, Shiva. So that's actually... Huh. Straight Lucas, and it makes sense. A lot of the inspirations behind the Force and some of this stuff is based on on, on Sanskrit stuff. It's along with Japan and China. It's one of uh, the three primary uh, Asian influences that Lucas is really interested in. That's really cool. I mean, I feel slightly bad about giggling every time someone says Sheev, but also Sheev. I mean, <laughs> you know, before I knew where it came from, I just thought it was silly. Now that I know where it comes from, I mean, it's still silly, but I, I lean into the absurdity. And at least I appreciate it a bit more. Um, so it works for me. But sometimes, you know, it's not clear that that names actually have inspiration. Like uh, the Wikipedia seems to insist that Amidala is also Sanskrit from the word Amitabha. I'm less convinced because they just it, it just happens. Maybe they just looked up a word that sounds alike. They don't. It does. Amidala doesn't give off the same sound pattern as Amitabha does. And I, unless you know, there's better evidence. I'm I'm not willing to to call that one an inspiration. Yeah, that yeah. just seems more phonetic than anything. Yeah. Plus, I think I usually hear people pronounce it Amidala, mm -hmm. with a different stress on the syllables, right. which would change it completely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, other Nebu names from the Neberi family in general, uh, Ryu, uh, another niece of Padme's, uh, Ryu is a Korean name. I don't know if that's a direct inspiration, but, um, and I, I couldn't give you the definition of the name cause I'm not familiar with Korean, but Ryu, according to Google seems to be a Korean surname. Um, also Japanese when spelled differently with U's instead of O's. And then Rui could potentially be Filipino or Malaysian, but again, um, no direct evidence of that aside from uh, Googling those names. Huh. But I and do like... And then there's Sola. Yeah, which, Sola. Which... She seems like her name doesn't fit with the others. She's the Sola exception. 
I set you up for that, didn't I? Yeah, you did. You, you, you know better, Bria. You know better than just put it on the tee for him. I do, and yet. And yet. Uh, I love the Newberry family, though. They're so fun. And, and the deleted scene with them, you know, should have been in the movie. It, it's, you know, a bit, you know, obviously it's not exactly um, uh, Bechdel test breaking because they're talking about Anakin, but it's still cool to see... Uh, to see Padme's family and just see sort of a house on Naboo. That's not a palace. Like, like that, that, that was nice to see. Yeah. Although, man, Padme, that's what you wear to go to your <laughs> family's. Really? Girl. Girl. Yeah. It's she, a backless dress, basically. She can be a little extra at times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, always impeccable fashion sense. Oh, yeah. Just sometimes damn, very extra impeccable fashion sense. Yes. Uh, speaking of fashion, uh, we'll skip lyrics for a second, but since we brought up fashion, let's, let's go ahead and talk about it. So it looks like, um, based on various, uh, clothing exhibits and the, uh, wonderful dressing, a galaxy by Trisha Bigger, who is brilliant and did the costume design for the prequels. Um, she has a quote actually on, 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 uh, in her, the royalty chapter of dressing a galaxy where she writes a multitude of influences were drawn upon for inspiration, global cultures and art painting and sculpture, Historical costumes ranging from early civilizations to contemporary fashion, from ethnic clothing to elaborate imperial court attire. The aim was to create a unique look by combining culture, style, and periods to shape new fashions. And it definitely looks like they did that for Naboo. Uh, examples of uh, different cultures they've blended um, that I can recall or identify are Mongolian for Padme's Senate outfit, Manchu for the same outfit, um, the Chinese, um, there's some Chinese inspiration for Amidala's throne room outfit, according to the costume book, and uh, Japanese inspiration for the face paint. And of course, there are influences all over the place with fashion because Naboo is great with fashion, including European influences such as uh, the Italian weaving on Padme's meadow, meadow gown, or even the Byzantine pearls on uh, Queen Apollana's design from Revenge of the Sith. What do you folks think about fashion? Brian, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, Naboo is definitely <laughs> Naboo is definitely a melting pot of sorts as far as just uh, borrowing from real world cultures to create to create a visual language. There, um, it's it, there's there's obviously a lot of Asian influence in there, but there's but like you said, Jay, there's also some there's also some European stuff that makes its way in. It's a uh, it's it's re it's really really interesting. Um, I I don't know if I'd call it appropriation, but it definitely makes for a very very striking visual palette. Yeah, I think we talked about it a fair bit in the episode we did last year, um, and I think the I hate to say conclusion, but I don't know what other word to use. Um, but the conclusion we came to at the time was it's not great, but also it's sort of mitigated by the fact that they do draw from so many other cultures. Uh, I think one you forgot on here was the Russian headdress that she wears as a quote-unquote refugee. Because when I'm a refugee, I totally wear a giant headdress that you can now buy in Galaxy's Edge, by the way. That you can. Yeah. Um, it actually looks pretty nice, too. But, uh, yeah, so... can't remember where I was going with that, except to say... That as far as fashion goes, I do, 
I do like that you see such a variety across, uh, both from cultural influences and in the softer gowns and yeah. the more court-centric ones. And most of what we've seen has been court or upper-class-centric. Uh, in Queen Shadow, E.K. Johnson goes into detail about how they use expectations about wardrobe to, to protect the queen. Um, the gowns are made, they're elaborate, they're made to look so people look at them and not look at the person who's inside it to help with the deception and everything. And I always love the idea that they managed to, someone in Naboo figure out how to weave like blaster resistant fabric. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I, while it may be borderline appropriate, um, I, I do think this, I do think that the intent was to create a visual a, a visual spectrum that portrays Nabu as more of a melting pot. So I I I I'm willing to give a lot more I'm willing to give a lot more leniency on that. Um or on on that because it did create something that looks that looks pretty nice and diverse. Yeah, and I agree on that. I think that the fact that they're blending different styles together instead of saying this is just one thing and just blatantly taking it. And then also the fact that Nebu itself is increasingly showing the more we see it, more and more diversity, that if it's a diverse place with lots of real world influences, if that's reflected in the population that's living there, it sort of mitigates and makes me feel better about the influences. Plus, I, I do actually genuinely like that they drew from history and real cultures that provides a really... Um, solid grounding for the visual language that, you know, sometimes space and sci-fi stuff can get too plasticky and too metally. And the fact that Naboo is one of the most earthy, you know, in, in, in all senses, planets really helps it be that compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also now occurring to me that the fact that everyone on Naboo doesn't have the same, the same American or the same British accent contributes to the whole melting pot idea is that you hear all these different accents throughout just like you see all these other cultural influences throughout. So it doesn't feel like it's just one monolithic culture. Yeah. So it, it definitely had the potential to be really cringy, but I think for the most part, it, it successfully veers away from those potential pitfalls. Yes. The cringe in that movie got saved for the Nemoidians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to take us down like that. Yeah. There, there's, well, there's you're not no wrong. them, though. Yeah. Really not. I mean, they were cringy then, and they're still cringy now. There's no defending that one. <sighs> well, on a slightly happier note, let's talk about song lyrics. So uh, you, may, you, may, uh, you may or may not know that Duel of the Fates, the chanting, is actually song lyrics. And the chanting specifically is in the Sanskrit language, but it's not direct Sanskrit. It's actually uh, John Williams took a Celtic battle poem and had the lyrics of that battle poem translated into Sanskrit. So it's it's got that pattern of a, a war poem, but an alien, more alien language to it. Um, and then, of course, wait, it's got what? The, yeah, really? Yep. I did not know that until today either. That is so cool. Yeah, well, huh. I think in some of the behind-the-scenes features, he goes into the details about uh, Duel of the Fates and, you know, his choice of poem and the patterning and what the lyrics means, and it's 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 really, really cool. 
you know what? Oddly enough, it never actually registered in my head that there's lyrics for Duel, Duel of the Fates. Exactly, because he specifically picked a language that would sound um, not like a language that most people are familiar with. And then the fact that it was chanted so beautifully by that choir, it just it just sounds like choir. Yeah, so it it sound it what it sounds like is uh, I, I think you said this, Jay, but a, a, what's called a tone poem that is sh- that leans away from using words but rather uh, just vocal tones to paint a picture. Um, a great example of a tone poem is uh, Lux Arumke by uh, Eric Whitaker. Uh, go find that on YouTube, and uh, that, that really, um, really kind of lays out what I think Williams was going for, uh, going for with uh, the vocal stylings on Duel of the Fates. I feel like I have homework to do after this episode. This is so cool. Yeah. Um, also, if you like uh, Sanskrit, before we get to one other thing, the uh, Battlestar Galactica intro um, song is also uh, a Sanskrit hymn. I think that I do. I'm pretty sure I'd heard that one before. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Gayatri Mantra, which is a particular hymn. Mm. Um, speaking of Sanskrit, uh, Qui Gon and Padme's funeral, the uh, the sound that they play during the funeral is also a uh, Sanskrit translated poem. I think this one might be an English morning poem that's translated into Sanskrit uh, for both of their funerals. And I did not know this until I researched this, but Qui-Gon and Padme's funerals have the same exact uh, lyrics for them. Huh. That I didn't know either. Interesting. Again, so it, I it didn't occur to me that there's lyrics going on for Padme's funeral. Yeah, and, and I I think you can hear it a lot more clearly in The Phantom Menace because like when I'm mentally thinking of it in my head, like I can imagine the funeral and then Yoda saying, you know, um, you know, only you know, who was always, destroyed, you know, always two there are right. Yeah. Huh. And that's I think one of the few times where you actually see Amidala repeat an outfit. Oh, interesting. Which outfit is that? That's the the purple one? Yes. It's one she wears. Yeah, I think it's the one she wears on the way back to Naboo. That's right, because she's in the, the, uh, the room of the ship when she's telling everyone her plan. Well, sort of. Speaking of her plan, uh, when we ever talk about Naboo, we should not forget the Gungans. Um for multiple reasons. Uh, the influences of the Gungans, near as I can tell, are drawn from South American influences, Southeast Asia and Africa in terms of their clothing, their style, the uh, statuary we see around Naboo. And in the film, they play the role of natives displaced by colonial settlement. And even though that was sort of implicit in The Phantom Menace, it's made directly explicit in both the EU and canon via the colonist backstory of Naboo. Um, the Clone Wars episode Crisis on Naboo does a sort of holographic photo play of the settlement of Naboo and uh, the explorers who quote-unquote settled it. And yeah, they, they definitely represent the colonial population, and which makes all the stereotyping around the Gungans especially uncomfortable, both you know real-life stereotyping and uh, in Star Wars stereotyping. But it was really cool recently that uh, last shot by Daniel Jose Older had a scene addressing the stereotyping of the Gungans and uh, how not all Gungans sound like that. And uh, a Gungan really got to stand up for himself and uh, 
explain uh explain his piece and i really really enjoyed that i'm still i'm like snickering just thinking about the scene because it was it was so well written and i feel like there's very few authors aside from daniel jose older who could pull it off mm-hmm. with the whole you coming in here with the mises and the uses what are you what is this come on just go to other people like that and i'm just like it's so it's hilarious because it's djo but it's also there it has that punch of realism to it of exactly. uh-huh yeah because that is something that i think uh most minorities might have experienced in real life and you know we've gotten used to it or we fought back against it but we've been definitely been frustrated by it and and to see it addressed that direct way in star wars that was really punchy and i'm glad that was done yeah especially because then the character it wasn't just a one-off character for a joke i think the character was around for at least a decent amount of the book yeah he continued into the book and uh, was a part of a parallel plot line i think because there was yeah. like three plot lines going on. Yep. All right. Uh, and with that, let's get to a discussion of Naboo and specifically Queen's Shadow, which was the original focus of the episode uh, when we were having when we were thinking of having this discussion back in March. And uh, we still want to discuss it now. So for a quick summary of the book, uh, the book's essentially set after The Phantom Menace. It's about Padme's initial hesitation or decision whether or not to join the Senate after she retires as queen versus her desire to go free Anakin's mother. Um, One of the big things it does is highlight the roles of the handmaidens and gives them individuality and makes them feel like distinct people. And uh, Sabe plays a role um, as the second protagonist of the story. And Bria. Yes. Tell us all about Sabe and the handmaidens. She's the best. Um, I that's just such a. Do you want me to go down to the next bullet or oh, like just keep talking? Okay, so the one thing I really, really, I've always really loved about the handmaidens is you have these teenage girls who, and let's keep in mind, Sache is literally twelve years old when the Phantom Menace happens. Um, you have these teenage girls who are able to kick ass, look amazing, play so many different roles. And then when the book starts, they're like 16, 18, maybe 19 years old. And they have to figure out what their new career is. Like, can you imagine being 18 years old and being like, all right, time for my second career. What do I do now? I'm 30 and that thought frightens me. Right? I mean, and then like Sache, she is seen as a hero of Naboo. Like all the guards are all like, we will do whatever she asks because she withstood being tortured by the Trade Federation at 12 years old. Like, and she was tortured so much that she still has scars all down her back. Like, literally, your favorite could never. Yeah, so if you were wondering what those processing centers were like, that's apparently what they were like. Yeah. Uh, and they were using, her, like, her and Yane were helping ex- send messages back and forth between the people who were in the resistance. And Sache never broke. It was, yeah. Um, But that's not talking about Sabe, who I also really, really love. Uh, So she was played by Kira Knightley in The Phantom Menace. And the fun story that you always hear is how when her and Natalie Portman were in costume that their own mothers couldn't tell them apart. Um, And so what I liked about what E.K. Johnson was able to do in Queen Shadow was she established, she showed us Padme at a time in her life 
when, again, moving on to a second career, trying to figure out what she wanted to do and what and learning how to be good at being a politician in this arena was. And then you had Sabe who, yeah, she could have gone on to do something else, but she stayed on with she stayed on with Padme because if Padme went to the Senate, isn't it convenient that she can be in two places at once? And she was able to keep helping her friend, her very, very close friend, by trying to sl- free slaves on Tatooine and try to find Shmi. Um, sure did really more. Sh- sure did more on that than the Jedi ever did. Well, that wasn't hard. <laughs> you could have sneezed. You could have yeah. sneezed at Jabba the Hutt and done more than the Jedi did. But yeah, so I'm how- trying to be good and not rant too much. <laughs> So how good would a uh, Rebellion-era Sabe story be? Oh my god, so good. So good. You could just get her and Tanra. Oh, should I just say that I'm going to spoil? I'm spoiling Queen Shadow. If you haven't read it by now, that's your own fault, guys. Um, I love that, like, as soon as I read the first page of Queen Shadow, which is a terrible, horrible gut punch because it's like, Padme with her eye, you know, eyes closed, sitting there, and you're like, "Oh my God, is she dead?" And then the book literally ends with her funeral, um, and you see Bale finding Sabe and being like, "Hey, finger guns, we should talk." And so I've always, I've always loved the idea that Sabe goes on to become a part of the Rebel Alliance, and like she keeps doing what she can to help out. And man, there should be, mm, we need some stories. Oh. <gasps> I just had an idea. Yes. Oh my God. It's not going to happen in a thousand years. But holy shit. Can you imagine if they get Kira Knightley to show back up as Sabe for the Cassian show? Oh. Oh, that would be wild. Oh, that would be brilliant. <gasps> I need it to happen so badly. Oh, because I've always loved the idea of having Padme's legacy be in the Rebel Alliance. And in the EU, we saw a little bit of that with. Uh, Puja Naberi in the Senate, but having having Sabe show up, and I mean, I still want to see Puja Naberi too. But yes, yes, Sabe in the uh, casting. So, oh my god! Yeah, and it wouldn't it exactly be like. I mean, she would kind of be slumming it because it's you know I don't think Kara Knightley's on a TV show in years, but I mean, oh look, they're getting all the MCU stars to do Disney Plus shows. Yeah, Can you get Kara Knightley. Oh my god, that would be so cool. Oh, I never needed anything more in my life and it's not going to happen. Oh, you guys need to move on because I'm going to be on so- I'm right. be stuck here for at least another minute or two. All right, speaking of taking time, we learned about Naboo term limits in this uh, book, which I know doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it was interesting. Um, in the EU, the, the term of the Naboo queen was two terms of four. Now it's two terms of two. And uh, speaking of interesting politics, we learned how sausage, or specifically concrete, is made in the Galactic Senate. And uh, I think on Twitter, E.K. Johnson said something about how she had to study a lot of the process involved in making concrete, both politically and just the nature of concrete. And that ends up actually being very important to the plot of the book, because uh, as the political plotline on Coruscant happened, we learned the role of the media and news nets and the need to build alliances and how a lot of politics is the day-to-day 
grunt work, and I actually really love to see that because so much of the political books in Star Wars are just the cut and thrust of high politics, you know, great lines, dramatic scenes in the Senate, votes that collapse, that kind of thing. But it was nice to see the small day-to-day stuff and the, you know, I, I, I don't want to compliment Mon Mothma and Bail Organa. I mean, I'm fine with Bail. I don't want to compliment Mon Mothma, but there's this great scene with the two of them talking to uh, Padme and, say, and basically saying, you know, we like you, we want to recruit you, but you're basically, you know, a loner in the Senate and you, we, we need to see that you're a part of something before you, before we're willing to extend a hand to you. And this, the, the whole plot line of Padme deciding, is she going to be with their pro-Republic faction? Is she going to be with uh, Mina Bonteri? Was, was absolutely great. And I, I, again, I love the whole media thing, the media stereotyping of her and them trying to tear her down and that, I mean, we don't even need to draw analogies to contemporary politics, but think about any time a, uh, a young female politician comes on the scene and the media tears them apart for superficial reasons, the way they dress, the way they act, oh, your outfit is too expensive. Um, that felt very real to me, and I, like, and I liked seeing that uh, in this book. It reminded me of um, the portrayal of, uh, of Leigh and the uh, Alexandra Bracken, a New Hope novel, which had the same idea where the media was judging her on her fashion rather than her actual contributions, and I guess like, uh, like mother, like daughter. Yeah, I loved um, – I had two points I was going to make. I loved that not only did you see that and, and that the book really leaned into the whole – uh, women who have the fancy outfits and all, and then how she was able to use that to her advantage to to fool people. Um, the garden scene is still one of my favorite things of all time. Uh, but I also love that there were ramifications for her big speech to the Senate because yes. the last time she was there, like she basically deposed the Supreme Chancellor and then That's just right. flounced back off. And now everyone in the Senate's like, um. You can't do that every time you come back here. Like, that's just not going to fly. Uh, and that was a huge part for trying to figure out how to how to function uh, as a senator. And I thought that was a really, really cool way to think about it. Because she's been so used to being a queen. She's used to thinking about her people and she knows what her people want. And yeah, the Senate didn't elect her. They don't care. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah, a key part of the book is that that transition, her change of roles. Like just like her handmaidens had to change her role, she she's not a queen anymore, and uh, she has to learn uh, how to be a senator. And the whole reason she's a senator in the first place is because uh, as we're learning more about Naboo, we learn about her both predecessor and successor as queen. It turns out Queen uh, Rayliata or Rayliata. Um, not, who was a young queen at the time, although is older than than Padme now. Uh, there are also a lot of Battlefront Two connections, both just in the general sense that uh, E.K. Johnston apparently consulted it in the the layout of of feed, but that also hold on, the, wait, I'm gonna, I'd like to point something out. Go for it. <laughs> Talking about Battlefront Two and the layout of feed, because guess who was answering questions about Naboo in Battlefront Two, <laughs> and didn't know why she was answering them. Who? Would it be you? Yup. <laughs> I thought we were just chatting about Naboo. I mean, there's that, that's fair, though. There's always a great reason to chat about Naboo. Seven months later. Oh, by the way, Kate wrote Queen Shadow. Okay. This is fine. 
No, actually, it's awesome. And she, Kate, uh, E.K. Johnson was nice enough to give me and some other of our friends uh, shout outs in the back. <laughs> but yeah. I love it. Like you said, I love that all those ties were there. Yeah. And including uh, a story tie to the um, the idea of the ion pulse um, of Naboo ended up being uh, implemented as a stressful plot point because uh, there was a debate whether or not an ion pulse should be installed to defend Naboo from future droid attack. And that ion pulse is, of course, what gets used in uh, the Battlefront 2 game. And that ended up being a point of contention between Quarsh and Mariak Panaka and end up alienating uh, Quarsh Panaka, uh, Captain Panaka as we know him, from Amidala, which is a good way of explaining why we have Captain Typho, um, who's also in this book, as uh, Amidala's head of security in Attack of the Clones. So I, all these connections are just so well done and, and, and well explained. Yeah, and also how he ends up as like a moth. Oh, that was so great, though. God. I shrieked when I got to that part in the in the book because I was reading this at Dragon Con and it was like I think about 1.30 in the morning and I'm sitting in the lobby of the Hilton and I get to that and I think I just yelled and the people at the front desk were kind of concerned about me. <laughs> yeah and, and speaking of that I mean it's it, you know canon has been great to Naboo in general and, and Moff Panaka showing up in, in Leia Princess of Alderaan that was that's an old Legends reference. Uh, there was a, I think it was the Revenge of the Sith, uh, one of the guidebooks, uh, the cross-section books, was like, uh, oh, here's a gift that Palpatine received from Moff Panaka. And that was just sort, of, just sort of an offhand reference, which amused a lot of us for a while. And then when uh, Claudia Gray was writing Leia Princess Alderaan, she was uh, considering having Panaka be uh, a part of the Rebel Alliance. And I think, uh, according to Wikipedia... Pablo Hidalgo mentioned offhand, hey, you know, in Legend, uh, he's a moth, and so take it or leave it, it's up to you. And uh, Claudia Gray's like, yeah, yeah, this is a great way to add tension, I like this. And she added the moth Panaka and Leia plotline in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which is very dramatic. And that book's been out even longer, but I'm not going to spoil that plotline, but that's a great plotline. We I also need to reread that book. It is such a good book. It is, it is probably one of my top three favorite canon books. It would be. <laughs> it's just, I mean, there's a droid that loves fashion in that book and just all the royal stuff. Jay. The, the Senate and. Jay. What? Jay knows. I love. Jay knows all, all what he's about. I love that of everything in that book you could have possibly started with. You go for the droid that loves fashion. <laughs> there's also the son of the Coruscant Senator who's great. I mean, it's all, it's it just, okay, yeah, and, and Leia's pretty awesome too. I mean, I'm not, you know. All kidding aside, Leia is really great in that book. But yeah, no, Claudia Gray knows how to write things that I love. She has this magic power. I don't know how she does it. Blood magic. Yeah. No, uh, not really. That's a joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to stop Dragon Aging. So much Dragon Age. Listen, it's not my fault. I'm pretty sure it is. It's not. Brian, what do you think about Naboo fashion and monarchy? Uh, you know, I'm really not the most well-versed in the topics of monarchy or fashion, but uh, it it works in Star Wars. Naboo's pretty great. Were you also surprised when we found out that the term limits were two instead of four years? I, I felt was, like we'd yeah. all yeah, we'd all made that assumption. Yeah, um, I'd always assumed four. Yeah, I kind of have to wonder about like how much can you possibly get done in two years? I mean, it's not 
implausible Roman consuls had a term limit of one year and they weren't even allowed to repeat terms, but that's also not great. Yeah, that, that seems a little less than ideal. Yeah, especially if you're like campaigning and things like that. It's just there's not enough time to get anything done. Yeah, well, I'm assuming that their primaries or whatever are much less yeah. rigorous than ours in the United States, but that was interesting to me, especially since they said that uh, Reliata is was considered older for a queen. So you yeah. don't exactly get much time for like on the job training. Yeah. Well, well, that's interesting too, because if the term limits are so short, it's, they're basically guaranteed to have it during their years of youth, right? Like you're not going to age into a 20 something person. If you started as an early teenager, like you're going to stay a teenager. And I, I wonder what that says about Naboo culture and their, their focus on youth. Certainly their idealism too. If we learn from, uh, you know, the, the youth political uh, culture in uh, Nabu learned from Attack of the Clones. And you thought our years as teenagers were hard. <laughs> God, I, 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 I would have hoped that nobody would have elected teenage me to run anything because that would not have ended well. Hey, I'll have you know, I was repeatedly elected as a senator from the X-Wing fan club to the EU Cantina Senate. Multiple terms in a row. I was the chancellor multiple terms in a row. <laughs> So, in fact, people did elect us. <laughs> yeah, that was probably a bad idea on all their parts. <laughs> no, what I, were we thinking in our youth? Listen, I, I strongly advocated for the rights of Dinner and Silly Squadron. So that wasn't someone's got to advocate for not them. joking. <laughs> ah, all right. Back to topic, I guess, with some regret. Um, the, the one other thing I wanted to add about Princess of Alderaan is we got another name of another Queen of Naboo, Queen Dalne, who was the queen, I guess, during the period of this book before New Hope. So it was always great to see another Queen of Naboo. Um, as we mentioned, Naboo was in Battlefront 2, and it is wonderful, and you should play the game um, if you haven't, both for the story, which, um, you know, Iden Versio, who we've talked about before, is uh, great in that, in that game, as well as just seeing the way Naboo was beautifully realized, both the palace and the outside of Theed. More on that later. Uh, and then we also see Naboo in both Shattered Empire and the Leia miniseries from Marvel. Yes. Which is, those are all things you should definitely pick up if you haven't yet. Yeah, Naboo aside, both of those comics are extraordinary. And both Shattered Empire and the Leia miniseries are nice and short. You can get them all collected together and uh, very little commitment required on your part. Yes. All right. Uh, anything else before we move to the art corner? No, but I'm excited for the architecture because I can show off my my knowledge about a couple things. Oh, yeah, I know. I almost put a note for you on that one. <laughs> Bullet number two. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Naboo architecture. Let's start with that one. So Feed Palace uh, was filmed in Caserta Palace in, in Napoli, Italy. I almost went there. Unfortunately, I did not. I had to choose between that and Pompeii, and I very narrowly chose Pompeii for a, a bit stronger of my brand purposes. But uh, we see the Baroque neoclassical themes from Feed Palace, um, from Caserta Palace on, in Feed Palace, as well as Cosmotesque floor elements that's uh, inlaid marble of different patterns that's uh, mostly known from medieval Italy. So it's cool to see this historical blend in Theed Palace, which really underscores, you know, 
especially in episode one, you know, we'd only had the original trilogy to work with and everything was either metal and space age or the only real stuff we saw was on either Mos Eisley or on Yavin 4. Um, you know, Yavin 4, we got some real, real historical buildings with those uh, Mayan temples. But uh, aside from that, you know, Naboo was the first time that we saw just a very ornate style structure and it really set the tone for Naboo and I think the Old Republic in general. Um, if you want a good look at the palace interiors, aside from the Phantom Menace, you should definitely play Battlefront 2. Um, the palace levels will let you just wander around the palace and see the incredible art they have in there, including uh, this whole hall of paintings in the palace where they have uh, paintings of various Naboo royalty and uh, stained glass windows with pico-pico birds, which are my favorite birds of Naboo, and just different uh, pictures of Amidala and even Sayo Bibble. There's a painting of Sayo Bibble for some reason. I don't know why, but it's a great part of the palace. And I have actual stories of getting shot at in Battlefront 2 because I was too busy looking at the art to now, actually fight that back. that is on brand. I mean, I've also done it. Because <laughs> you can only see a small portion of it in the uh, if you do the single player. So if you really want to see more of Naboo, you have to like luck out and get in there for a uh, a galactic assault. And yeah, people are very quick to shoot you in a galactic assault. Yeah, it's a multi-stage you... level. So you have to get to the interior first and then, you know, they'll be busy trying to kill you. Yeah. And there's a broader, you get to see more of the palace. Yes. Then you can do in the single player mode. Um, although they just announced today that they're going to be doing large uh, maps for single player. So hopefully that includes the Thede oh. Palace. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, because that would be wonderful. And just having large multi-stage maps in Battlefront in general, because the skirmish mode in Battlefront is nice, but it's mostly fighting against soldiers. But in this new mode, uh, the AI will be able to use ships and heroes, and it'll be just like playing multiplayer, except, you know, you can do it by yourself at home. So. Oh, I can't wait to make my mom play it. That'll be great. <laughs> So, um, and the cool thing about this painting hall is it apparently struck E.K. Johnston too, because it's referenced in Queen's Shadow and it's kind of hilarious. Yep. Uh, I also have memories of exploring the Feed Palace in Star Wars Galaxies back in 2002, 2003, just wandering around, walking through the palace, uh, unsupervised, taking photos myself and, uh, God, I love that building. Um, it. This was especially meaningful to me because, like I said, back in 2002, 2003, after Queen Jamilia showed that, you know, um, people that looked like me lived on Naboo, that was the planet that I made my home in that game. And it was cool just to be able to wander it and feel like, oh, I'm a native of this planet visiting the palace. It was that was that was a fun game. Speaking of visiting, though, let's talk about the lake, uh, the lake house uh, from Attack of the Clones in Lake Como. Um, has anyone here on this podcast been there? Yes, I have. Did I take a trip up to Milan and then up to Como specifically because of this house? Yes, I did. Um, so saying it's like Como was a bit is a weird way to say it because where they filmed specifically is the Via del Babianello. Um, and they did actually both some exteriors and some interiors as well. Uh, the tour guide for the the villa actually pointed out that only George Lucas would come to one of the most beautiful places on earth and then green screen out some of the scenery. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think also, if I remember correctly, because this was almost, oh, oh my God, it was almost 10 years ago. Um, sorry, I need a minute. Uh, <laughs> it was nine years ago. Oh my God, I'm old. Um, 
the fireplace scene, I think they showed us where that room was. And they also did it not inside the actual villa because there's two different sort of buildings right there. Um, and one is just more a couple of side rooms. But yeah, the, where they filmed it, it's so beautiful there. Uh, also where they filmed parts of Casino Royale. Oh, I did not know that, actually. Yes. Uh, when they're in Italy towards the end, when he's recovering somewhere, it's that same place. Different section of the out- external balcony gardens. But yeah, it's all right there. Um, I, I still remember being jealous of the day you went there, and I'm still jealous now. It was the best. Oh, it was so pretty there. I want to go back. Uh, so I, I haven't been there, but I can tell you a little bit about the interior design of uh, the lake house, particularly the scene where uh, Anakin is levitating the fruit. Um, it's a really cool uh, room they designed there. There's uh, Byzantine porphyry columns along the walls and then a Roman opus sectile floor that looks a little bit like the Pantheon and opus sectile is a uh, interlaced uh, marble, different colored marble stones put together in a pattern. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite rooms in uh, on Naboo and in Star Wars in general, along with uh, Padme's apartment in Revenge of the Sith, actually. Uh, she has a really good sense of design. Yeah. Uh, Thede City in general mixes uh, Roman architectural element with Italian uh, Renaissance style buildings. Um, and you also know the Mediterranean looking vines and stuff like that, along with the famous green domes of Nebu, which are more of a Byzantine slash Turkish inspiration. Um, another part, uh, Nebu wasn't filmed just in on Italy. Uh, the bits in Attack of the Clones where Padme and Anakin are heading the refugee ship were filmed in the Plaza de España in Sevilla, which I was lucky enough to visit last year, the year before, a couple years ago probably. Uh, no, last year. It was last year. Um, that's a uh, plaza that was designed for a world ex- exhibition in the late 19th century. Uh, it's on uh, based on a neo-Renaissance and neo-Mudejar, which is Moorish uh, elements uh, of Spain, with uh, some of the best Andalusian Maiolica um, ceramics that's uh, painted in uh, textured glazed, cer- sorry, glazed and painted ceramic tiles um, that you'll uh, ever see um, all over the floor of the uh, Plaza España. So when Nabu just picks, uh, Lucas found the most beautiful spots in Europe and made that the inspiration of Nabu. So it's no wonder that I just love Nabu. There's also lots of great in-universe Nabu art. In addition to the royalty paintings I mentioned in the Thede Palace, uh, Star Wars Visions had uh, this great painting of Nabu children during the Phantom Menace Victory Parade that's sort of painted in the style of a... Uh, Waterhouse painting, but with warmer Mediterranean co- colors. You can find that painting if you uh, look at the Wikipedia entry for Nabu people. And then there's also this really, really interesting looking uh, holographic art uh, fireworks display during Crisis on Nabu, where they're showing sort of the founding history of Nabu um, and its uh, colonial history. And I think I might have to leave it at that because honestly, if you just gave me a, a blank check i just talk about nabu ships and nabu fighters the yachts the jewelry their different uh, writing systems uh the outfits of people who aren't just amidala even the furniture styles that we see in uh the phantom Man- or uh, the clone wars and attack of the clones i could just talk about nabu stuff all day but i think uh i'll spare you all from that it's almost like there's a reason why you're the one leading this episode funny all right. Uh, is there uh, 
anything else we want to hit that uh, we've missed? Um, like I said, there's tons we could have talked about, but uh, floor is open to you guys. Well, I think some people wanted to tell something to KanjiCast. All right, let's let's move over to the audience questions then. Okay. Uh, Diana asked, what is the timeline with regard to King Varuna and his reign? That's a bit of a tricky question. So uh, under the expanded universe, King Varuna was the uh, predecessor um, to Queen Amidala on Naboo. Um, that story was fleshed out a little bit in Darth Plagueis, the novel. Uh, and he was like a much older king. He, he you know, that was uh, before the Naboo tradition of having younger monarchs. And the, the Plagueis novel goes into why that changed. Uh, there are still some reference books that vaguely reference King Varuna and the 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 Tarkin novel, I believe, even mentioned having a king predecessor to Padme at some point, but didn't mention him by name. But Queen Shadow does establish who's the direct predecessor to King Varuna. So as of right now, King Varuna's status is ambiguous, but there has been a king of Naboo at some point preceding Amidala. Does yes. that sound right, right to you, Bria? Uh, yeah, Amy put... I didn't get a chance to look at it again, but uh, Amy Rishao put together... And I'm sorry, I probably messed up her last name pronouncing it but uh she has a timeline for naboo monarchs that she put together for her 365 star wars woman website um and i think she said as far as we can tell uh, the response to what's the timeline with varuna is the mariah carey gif of her putting on of being like i don't know her <laughs> sounds about right that 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 timeline of naboo monarch sounds really cool i'll definitely have to check that out after the episode uh nancy asks how does an elected monarchy work already? Well, as it happens, Bree and I did write a co-write an article um, in our Czar Wars series. That's uh, Star Wars, except with the title Czar instead of Star, uh, about monarchy. And we wrote um, an, a Czar Wars article called A New Naboo on Tashi Station, where we go into the Naboo monarchy, at least as much as we knew about it at the time. Yeah, but this is in, like, what, 2015, 2014? Yeah. So it's been a, it was a while ago. We didn't really have a lot of new canon to work with, so we mostly talked about legends. But um, in general, there's you know we know that Naboo is a monarchy from the Fant or sorry that Naboo is a monarchy, but also democracy from the Phantom Menace, and there's nothing strictly incompatible with them. I mean, even beyond the constitutional monarchies in in modern Europe, there have been elected monarchies before. Usually, the people electing the monarchies are aristocrats um you know the holy roman empire famously had uh prince electors and duke electors but there's really not, no nothing incompatible with monarchy and election monarchy is just ruled by one person and to a certain extent um even a powerful presidential system like we have is basically an elected monarchy in a, in a different name so naboo's not actually that zany of a system i mean they're the weirdest thing about them is the age of their leaders not the fact that they're elected Relatedly, Odiad asked, who are the electors? Nobles and electoral college? The people? Gasp. Um, yeah, I'm afraid it, it actually is the people. Um, but all kidding aside, uh, yeah, we, we, we seem to know that uh, Naboo's a monarch or Naboo's a, a democratic monarchy. Um, I don't think they explain the voting franchise, but I'd be shocked if it just weren't all eligible voters. Um, and do that was kids a sense. Vote? Uh, I don't. Well, it depends on. I don't think we know what the age of majority is on Naboo. Yeah, because I mean, young teenagers can be monarchs. So, and and they definitely seem to have early education and political responsibilities. But uh, it's not clear 
how that ties to voting. And it may well be they can vote much younger than they can, you know, otherwise be adults, you know? I feel like it has to be younger than 14. I'm If I had to make a guess, I would say voting age is probably 12. And that's not backed by canon. That's just my guess. Because Padme was not the youngest queen ever elected. That's right. She says that. Yeah. So... And I'm going to assume that you cannot be elected queen unless you can vote, because that seems like a really bad idea. So I'm going with 12. Yeah. Yeah, 12 makes sense. It, it, it just goes to show how idealistic and how much faith the Naboo have in, in democracy and process. And uh, one of the great lines from Shattered Empire to close this out with was, uh, I think it was Leia saying to Queen Saruna that Naboo represented, you know, the best of the old Republic. And that certainly seemed, you know, the idea that Lucas was going for on the Phantom Menace. Like, let's start with uh, assist, uh, a people that believes in democracy and all that it stands for, even when, you know, the old Republic itself was, uh, falling down due to corruption. You know, Padme always believed in the Republic. She went to Coruscant to get help from the Senate, and it just seems to be part of Naboo to really believe in the Republic and democracy. And that's that's why I definitely hope that going forward uh, we see more of Naboo's involvement in the rebellion, whether it's uh, through Sabe or through Senator Puja Naberi, hopefully recanonized or something going on. Um, it's oh, the Emperor's... Ma- it's oh. the Emperor's homeworld, but it's it, it's not like Palpatine at all. Okay, aside forget forget the rebellion, aside from my amazing Sabe idea. What if they go there in Resistance Reborn? Ooh. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. an interesting angle. Cause Leia knows about her family by then too, and her, her yeah. heritage. Uh-huh. Oh, I like that a lot. Uh-huh. And um, Naboo senators, uh, Naboo senator in uh, was one of the senators blown up in the Force Awakens. Uh, we know that from the visual uh, dictionary. So, yeah, Naboo's still around and uh, uh, was uh, a member of the New Republic. So they'd be a natural place to get support. Yep. Oh man, no, I re- so many things I want to have happen in Star Wars, guys, and this one is vaguely more <laughs> probable than others. <laughs> Yeah, the cool thing about Naboo is not only do we love it a lot, but it's a prominent and important planet in Star Wars, and we we genuinely have a good chance of seeing it somewhere in the future again. Cassian Show, I'm telling you. Sabi and the Cassian Show. Jeez. Make it happen. Do it, you cowards. Do it. It's all I ever wanted. No, not really. There's other things I want, too. But also, I really want that. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now unless you want me to close this out for the episode. <laughs> I think uh, I'm, I'm good to close out. I think we are set to close out. Cool. So you can join us next time when we're going to be talking about Star Wars Resistance, in which we'll probably still be angry that it was canceled. But we'll also talk about our hopes and dreams of season two and possibly how wonderful and delightful Kaz is and how much we want to hug Tam. I don't know what's going to happen. Things will who be wa- discussed. Who wants to hug Tam? Me. We all want to hug Tam. Do you mm. not want to hug Tam? Jay, you monster. Oh, Jay, no. Am I the monster? Yes. Yes, you're the monster here, clearly. You are absolutely the monster. We're going to table this discussion and it will be bullet point number one on our resistance episode discussion. Is Jay a now, monster? Yes. Or why is Jay a monster? Wait, why am I agreeing with you? I'm not agreeing with you. Never mind. 
don't forget, if you have any questions for us to answer in a future episode, or you would like to chime in and agree with us that Jay is in fact a monster for not wanting to give Tam a hug at the end of season one of Resistance, tweet them to us via the Tosh Station account and with the hashtag KanjiCast. Uh, anybody have anything they want to plug before we sign out here? A nap? No, oh, that's true. <laughs> How desperately I need to finish my Dragon Age costume? <laughs> Going once, going twice, sold. I guess we'll take us out now. Uh, this episode of the Kanji Cast has been brought to you in part by you, our Patreon subscribers. That's patreon.com slash Tashi Station. Get in at the $1 level and tell Jay he's a monster yourself. Uh, on Twitter, you can find us with the handles Chaos Berea, uh, Admiral Jello, uh, Lane Winry, L-A-N-E-W-I-N-R-E-E, and Tashi Station. Uh, you can find this show on the Tashi Station Radio Mega Feed on the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you get podcasts from. You can find our columns and news and all of our other podcasts at TashiStation.net. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next month. <laughs>